Hello and a very warm welcome to the State of Our Nation, a podcast by Access Social Care. I'm your host, Carrie Gersteimer, and today we're going to be talking to experts, leaders and change makers about all things adult social care. We will all need social care at some point in our lives and at Access Social Care, our aim is to ensure that people get the support they have a right to. So listen along to find out more about the state of our nation as we discuss the challenges facing millions of people in need of social care across the country. This month, we are looking at health and social care inequalities. It's well documented that people from racialized communities experience worse health and social care outcomes than the general population. To help us explore this topic, I'm delighted to be able to introduce Shola Apena-Rogers, Programme and Partnerships Manager, and Robert Horton, Culturally Appropriate Peer Advocate from Black Thrive, as well as Janine Bailey, Information and Advice Coordinator at Access Social Care. Shola, Robert and Janine, welcome. So um, we're going to kick off then um, just by hearing a little bit about the work, Janine, that you've been doing with racialised communities in the London area with Access Social Care. Brilliant. Thank you, Carrie. Well, I've been working with yourselves for over a year now, um, and our focus at the moment has been to really engage and work with these communities to increase their knowledge of the law and their social care rights. Um, and I've done this by you know, going to meetings to introduce ourselves and then really co-designing bespoke workshops and training sessions for either advocates or individuals and clients that they work with. Um, some of this work has included training social prescribers that work in GP practices um, so that they can support their patients um, with any social care issue they have. So training them on the Care Act and the chatbot, as well as training uh, local rights champions who already have those kind of existing networks in BAME communities. So some of these so-called hard to reach communities that aren't hard to reach when you work slightly differently. Um, and then running more workshops with local organisations such as Croydon Mencap, uh, Carers Centre, the BME Forum and more. So that's a little bit about what we do. And then, you know, the next stage from that has been co-designing ways to create more accessible pathways to early help. So that's included um, looking at ways to refer into some free legal clinics and using the chatbot that I'm sure we'll talk about a bit later. That's fantastic. Thank you, Janine. So can you tell us a little bit more about why you think this work is important? Well, you know, as you mentioned earlier, uh, there's evidence that shows there's really disproportionate amount of being communities that access legal support, as well as those that are more affected by cuts to legal aid. Some of this has been, you know, looking at how um, people are engaged with, um, considering some of the barriers that some communities face, so some of the traumatic experiences that they've had with services in the past, that causes a bit of distrust with engaging with, with help. So just trying to do a little bit, little bit more work around um, supporting those communities that, as we said, are disproportionately affected. Um, so, yeah, and it, it's something that I've been passionate about myself. I've seen it in my communities and my previous work. Sometimes people, um, especially through the GP work we've we've done, they've engaged with professionals that have, let's say, maybe unconscious bias or their own prejudgments and haven't really listened to people's needs, haven't really 
um, supported them in an empathetic way or have their own lack of awareness of different communities. So what happens is that people then, from this traumatic experience of the service they've accessed before, tend to go inwards rather than asking for help. So they tend to go back into their communities rather than going out and, you know, you know, finding some other legal support or engaging with the local authority in a different way, they kind of lose that confidence. Um, so that's mm. something we've noticed a lot. Um, yeah, and then there's been, there is some issue around lack of awareness of their own rights and the UK system, but I'd say to go deeper, a lack of um, successful ways that local authorities aren't actually educating people about the rights that they're entitled to, either it's the local authority aren't aware themselves or they're just not acting in a lawful way. So they're not providing them with the information that they should know. And, you know, if I'm really honest, it does sometimes feel like it's intentional, um, you know, taking advantage of people that don't have that awareness. Thank you, Janine. That, that's really helpful to, to get that background. So one of the partner organisations we've been working with at Access Social Care is Black Thrive London. Shola, please, can you start by telling us a little bit about Black Thrive and why your work matters? So we started um, in 2016 in the London Borough of Lambeth. Now, as you know, Lambeth has a vibrant population and is home to the UK's biggest black community, uh, specifically African and Caribbean heritage. And we started here because although we are a vibrant community and I was born there, so I'm very affiliated with it, you know, I've watched how um, the community has changed over time and, um, you know, it continues to have a, a, a real, um, real vibrance, as I say, but it's not until you look a little bit further that you see that there are huge disparities for members of the black community in particular. So there's um, growing socioeconomic inequality um, that disproportionately affects black African and Caribbean people. And we know that things, uh, these factors are linked to um, greater stresses and that impacts negatively on one's physical health and mental well-being. So black, um, black thrive, they are a mental health organisation which was set up in Brixton and actually following the death of uh, Sean Rigg in custody, um, just because we were aware of those challenges specifically around mental health um, and those inequalities that weren't being addressed and was having a negative impact on people in Lambeth. So we are um, an organisation that deals predominantly with the adult age group, but we have also a young people section because we recognise that some of these inequalities are there from um, school. Um, they go forth into the workplace, et cetera. But um, we really focus on the inequalities within the mental health system. And uh, we work together with kind of NHS Trust in Lambeth, uh, the voluntary sector organisations, the local authority to really advocate for um, better conditions in terms of the mental health care that's received, even access to services, um, but more importantly, the experiences of black people going through those services. Can I ask then, Shola, in your experience and, and in your opinion, what's the root cause of black communities having worse health and social care outcomes than the general population? 
Yeah, I mean, due to those structural inequalities, um, the experiences and outcomes for Black people are significantly worse than the white counterparts in every sphere of life. So I, I mentioned education, there's employment, income, social care, which we'll talk a lot about, housing, policing, criminal justice system. Um, and so that those issues have to be at the core of all that we are seeking to change and challenge and disrupt um, if we're going to kind of make a difference and make a positive impact for Black communities. Um, and I guess it's really understanding. I think one of the things that's at the core of, of um, of Black Thrive is that we really listen to the community and seek to engage them, to hear from their experiences what the barriers are. We find too often that services are set up, but they're not really taking into account the experiences of those trying to access them. Um, and, you know, I think the, the level of co-production that we drive within Black Thrive, with whatever service is being set up, it has to have that lived experience so that we can set up you know, then we can meet the needs of, of the community and not just kind of guess what might be culturally appropriate, but actually ask people like, you know, you when you're admitted into the wards, kind of what, what do you need? You know, what's your history as well? I think it's very important when we're looking at something like mental health, not to just focus on that person and where they are and what the presenting um, conditions are at the time because we know that they would have been on a journey so a part of it is understanding what was that journey like um, and what were those barriers and those factors that have contributed to them experiencing mental health difficulties at this time. Mm, we're all individuals aren't we and um, there's definitely not one one size fits all when it it comes to health and social care. So, so one of the programmes, um, Shola, that you're responsible for is the Culturally Appropriate Peer Advocacy Service. Robert, um, please, can you tell us a little bit more about this service that you are working within? Okay, yeah. So um, within CAPSA, the, um, the acronym, um, what we um, tend to do is um, we provide um, peer, support, peer support and advocacy for um, people that are um, on the mental health wards in, in Lambeth, but also to our um, clients um, that are in the community as well. Um, the aim really is to um, look at what are the barriers, what, what barriers and what their needs are, what their culturally specific needs are. And um, within that, um, how we can uh, aid their recovery process and advocate for them in all areas of their um, their sectioning, where if they're on a, um, a section two, which is um, quite basically it's a mental health assessment, um, seeing what are the, um, what were their challenges, which actually led to them coming into crisis. So it's quite a um, people-led, um, a person-led um approach that we take and quite invariably what we find is that um, there are usually been um, significant social care um, deficits that led to there being crisis and then from that we try to then signpost them and get them to um, a place of um, or a better place of recovery and because as we know anybody everybody's um, mental health journey is, um, is particular to themselves so within CAPSA, that's the main crux of our work is to really try and have a, a person-led um, approach. And, and we've, we've heard a little bit about why that's important from Shola, but I'm curious, why, does that, why, why is this work important to you, Robert? Um, to me, it's really, um, I'd have to say it's really important to me because when you hear a person's story, 
you realize that um, because of the structures that exist, um, a lot of people blame themselves and they don't understand how the system has always worked for them. And in that, by giving them the information and the knowledge that they need to actually challenge um, even their section, the way their, their treatment in on the wards, they are better able to um, have control of have control over their lives. Because a lot of the times you have you enter what you call in a hospital, you expect to be cared for. Then you have somebody who's a care coordinator, a person who's um, their job invariably is to care to take care of your needs. And a lot of the time, the cultural perspective of their need isn't really taken to, into um, account. And when you actually look at where somebody, the different facets of their culture that make them uh, a whole human being, when you actually take those into account, you do get a better um, response. And um, so I know from doing legal casework myself, Robert, that there's always a case that kind of gets into your skin or you think yeah. about or that you're really pleased about the outcome or you're worried yeah. about it. Is there a case that you want to tell us about today? Well, um, actually, yeah, I've literally just come from one of the world. It's quite, um, it's kind of, I think that's part of, I'm um, quite passionate about as well. And what it was, it was, a, it was a individual. He was transitioning from being on the streets to um, having his own accommodation. And within that, it's also about um, availabilities. He, um, all he had was his mobile phone and that's how he used to check in with the DWP. And, um, but he didn't have credit was in a bad environment, he missed an appointment, he ended up in a situation where, um, this is just, um, the story, this is how I met him on the ward, he um, ended up in a situation where he didn't have credit, so they it, um, they docked his payment because he missed a meeting that he didn't know that he was supposed to attend. Um, he fell into crisis, he went to his local MP um, asking for help because um, invariably he basically had £20 um, to live on for the month, for about two months. Um, he went when he went to the MP. The MP was successfully um, able to um, challenge his his um, entitlement. He got that restored, and he also got him food from a food bank. The gentleman was so um, happy and so like he, he was. He, was, he had so much gratitude for the um, for the MP for helping him that he then went to the MPs and he wanted to offer the food to him uh, to the to the actual MP surgery. Um, but they were like, no, sorry, we were just doing our job. Thank you. But he's like, no, 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 I must give you a gift. I must give you a gift. The consequence was he waited outside um, longer than he should have been. And then they called the police on him. Um, when they called the police on him, he um, then this then triggered um, his care, um, his care coordinator, um, thinking that um, this wasn't this was a it was it was a improper response. Um, from that improper response, he then ended up having a mental health assessment. And then that mental health assessment then meant that this gentleman was placed onto a ward. And in his mind, he's just been penalized for trying to do the right thing all the way, all the way along. And it's basically been, he's just been penalized for being poor. Yeah. Have you been able to help Robert? Well, yeah, at the moment we are actually helping and we're trying to, um, this is the other portion of it, is that um, now that we he is on the ward, I'm able to support him, or I'm starting to support him within his ward rounds, obviously with the um, uh, the junior doctor strike last week, we weren't able to um, attend meetings, 
but it's, we're also trying to um, get him a better um, social care package because he's coming from being on the streets and him being on the ward, he was actually in a situation where he might have um, lost the accommodation that he did have. And then that's another problem that happens. A lot of people, when they end up on the ward, um, if their um, assessment, if they get into section three, which can last um, up to six months initially, then further six months, they can then end up losing the social house that they have and then be further down the line and be put into in inappropriate places of care for them. So at the moment, we're just trying to um, get him a new um, assessment, speaking with his um, care coordinator, also to explain the cultural nuances of um, how a person may appear to be manic or um, when it's not. And I'm sure that that, that input will make a difference, Robert. Thank you for explaining. So access social care's hypothesis is that by encouraging people to use legal language and um, using that legal language early on, we're hoping that we can secure improved health and social care outcomes. So Janine, I'm, I'm curious to go back to you um, to hear a little bit about the challenges you've come across when trying to encourage people to use rights-based language and legal arguments. Mm. Yeah, I mean, to start by giving an example. So I mentioned some of the rights champions that we identified that already had these existing kind of relationships in their communities and you know we trained one of them up on the care act and on how to use the chatbot and she had identified uh, one particular family who really needed it but had a massive distrust of working with access and felt very um kind of anxious about sharing their vulnerability and the support that they needed um, and, you know, it took us, I think we we spent probably two weeks back and forth supporting the rights champion to think about a different way to approach it, um, for them to meet with myself so that they, you know, didn't see, you know, white faces and this kind of anxiety, I think, that they had felt from engaging with previous practitioners, as I mentioned before. And they had had um, several, let's say, uh, traumatic experiences I'd caused. I'd, call it yes traumatic experiences for some people it might not be traumatic but when you're in a situation where you're needing desperate help and you it's taking you a long time to get past any pride or any kind of insecurity to ask for help and then you're kind of pushed away that creates an ongoing issue so we had to kind of deal with that issue of distrust and encouraging them and showing good examples really from when we we have supported people um, so that was that's been one of the issues and uh, one of the kind of challenges that I faced as well as speaks to the importance of um, maybe having more lawyers who are people of colour, doesn't it? Yeah, exactly, exactly. And just to help break down, you know, what Shola and Robert had mentioned, this history of, of disproportionate stuff and this traumatic experiences that isn't just felt by the individual it's felt by generations. So it's, you know, their family members, their great grandparents who, you know, rightly so have said, you need to be wary of certain services or don't go here and ask for help because this is how you're going to be treated and this is how you're going to be judged. And a little bit, you know, I'm really passionate about unconscious bias and making sure, you know, we are training practitioners on their own kind of judgments that they might not even be aware of. Um, so that's that's kind of one of the challenges. I think the others have been around, you know, hope and um, 
having the hope that you're going to be heard and similar to the example Robert gave that, you know, you've experienced where people don't listen and they don't think about your cultural needs. They're not considered or they're not listened to. And if all of that is really hard to undo, because like I said, it's generations that's been happening for such a long time. Um, and some of the other challenges that we mentioned before is around resources um, and awareness and feeling in terms of language barriers that you sometimes people don't want to admit that they don't fully understand or they feel anxious about kind of different um, acronyms that are used and legal languages. They don't have that confidence. So there's a mixture of things. Um, but yeah, they, these are some of the things that we've we faced. So we've looked at, you know, um, amending our training sessions and changing some of the workshops and thinking about how we're advertising. So these are some of the things that we've considered. And most importantly, again, what Shona has mentioned, that co-design and working with people who've had those lived experiences. So thank you for, for explaining that, Janine. So what, one of the things that Access Social Care has been working on is a legal information chatbot. So this is a an online robot that people can access on our website at www.accesscharity.org.uk. Um, and the chatbot will take you to legal information and to legal letters that can be sent off to public bodies to hopefully improve health and social care outcomes. So I'm curious then to hear a little bit more, Janine, about how you've been using the chatbot. And Robert, I, I, I know that you've been doing some work um, looking at how we can improve that chatbot so that it is culturally appropriate, so that people um, from black communities feel more confident using this bit of tech. Well, one of the things um, that we've we've been doing is running these workshops, these really kind of practical sessions um, to encourage people to not just use the chatbot, but to grow in confidence using it, seeing that it's, it's something that's user-friendly, um, we've got accessibility tools so it can be converted into different languages. Um, so we've been running these workshops and training sessions, as well as kind of going in and doing one to one sessions with with individuals. Um, and in addition to that, training advocates. So people that already have relationships with those groups, such as Black Thrive, who have great relationships in the communities that they work with to support them, to support their clients to use the chatbot. And has it worked, Janine? Yes, it has. I mean, so far, just looking at some of our figures, sorry, they might not be completely up to date because we've done a lot more work in the last couple of months. But we've got 65 people that have passed through our clinics and utilised the chatbot. Um, and to give a quick example, if I may, Gary, um, some of the work Please. we've been doing with social prescribers um, who work with patients in these communities and um, um, to give an example, one of the social prescribers that works in the Mayday area in Croydon had a, a client who had put in a request for an assessment and waited five months and still had no response from the local authority, not even a receipt to say we've received your request. After doing the training on the chatbot, she used the chatbot uh, template letter sent off a letter to the local authority and no word of a lie she got a response the next day and they got an assessment a week later and we were like wow this is, <laughs> this is what this work is about um so yeah lovely to hear thank you robert i'm really curious to hear more about how you're working to improve it to make sure that it's culturally appropriate I, well i think um one of the, the good things about it with chatbot is um 
allowing people to um, feel as though they're being heard and their story. And I think a, a lot of the time, when whenever I'm working with a client, it's literally um, allowing them to know that the chatbot is there for you to um, actually, in line with the law, it's there for them to explain, express their story and how their need hasn't been met. And I have found that um, even within going through the chatbot process and being a, um, an advocate for somebody when they're um, when we're drafting a, a letter, that it, it just by participating in the process and breaking down some of the language um, that we use, the legal language, it also, as I was doing within um, within advocacy, when you empower somebody with the um the language and the tool to challenge um the thing the the things that held them back or the barriers that they had that um they feel so much more um empowered and also um especially when people have fluctuating levels of um capacity um that will be for people in mental mental health wards um also from when I work with a person's primary care nurse who um quite often they help us to fill out the um the bar, they are finding it much um, that they have a better result with their um, client as well, or with the, the patient or the inpatient themselves. So, just the, just I would have to just say, just the process of people being heard and their story being heard from a place of um, nobody's listening, nobody's um, contacting. You know, you just as Jim talks about the barriers where there is you've put forward an assessment or you thought you were you're entitled not being having access to your entitlement having a tool that actually produces results that in itself is very um, very inspiring to people that's great to hear and i know that we've been working with you to to make sure that some of the conversation flows and the way that those conversations are crafted are appropriate for for um people from the black community to make sure that we're we're, we're answering and questioning the, about the right things that the, the chatbot does what it needs to do for your for the communities that you're working Absolutely. with. So thank, thank you, Robert. So, um, Shola, I'm really curious. Um, we've been working with you for about a year now, and I'm, I'm, I'm interested to hear a little bit about how you'd like to see the so- Access Social Care Black Thrive relationship developing as we go forwards. Yeah, and, I, and you know, this um, CAPSA in particular, that which really drives the access to social care work that we're doing here, has been going for a year and is entering their kind of second year of delivery, which is great. Um, and we're funded by the, um, the Living, Lambeth Living Well Network Alliance, um, which I think is really important because it's all the key partners, as I said, from the local authority, from the uh, NHS. And, you know, we, we know that part of our work to get that race equity and systems change needs all the organisations at the table kind of working together. And so to have access to social care come on board to help, you know, I guess, challenge the mindsets um, in, in a way and then work alongside these other organisations just to make sure that we can get the allocation of resources, um, you know, for black communities where that hasn't historically been happening um, and that that works not just at a preventative level when I mean, we're thinking particular for mental health but it also helps the other side in terms of the recovery as, as Robert says you know there's lots of um, individuals that are in the inpatient setting and you know they need part of their recovery is so reliant on having that those resources around their social care needs met. Um, so that's really instrumental. So it feels like pulling another key person into p- place to help that happen. 
But also, I think one of the things that we tried to, to do at Black Thrive is really think about creating the knowledge base. And the great thing um, about the chatbot is it will produce data. Uh, and that data we can use to kind of say, well, this is a story and this is the this, these are the issues and this and therefore think of solutions. Um, and then we can have that data tracked over time to see how things are shifting, how it's responding. So that's a really, really key um, aspect of um, the partnership work that I think will help drive the, the, the systems change that we're going for and we're looking to get so that ultimately we'll reduce those health and social care inequalities um but as we say you know it's really about empowering individuals families communities um and increasing that kind of legal understanding about what they need um which i think is really kept key to ensuring that you know people are able to live fulfilled lives within the community um, so that aspect of it is really exciting and to see how, you know, working alongside, um, you know, those those on the ground, those social prescribers, those advocates, how do we just make, make sure that it's it's a fit for all and that, you know, um, black communities can make, find, um, you know, find what they need from the process. So really, really excited to see how this is going to pan out. We're excited too, and I'm, I'm glad that you mentioned the data um, and, and I suppose the chatbot as well, because we hope that the chatbot will be a lasting legacy for communities and that that data will continue to be useful for citizens to influence decision makers and work alongside decision makers to improve the system. So really fantastic to hear that. Thank you, Shola. So just to wind up the discussion today, then, we always close the podcast with the same question, um, which I will pose to all of you. What one thing? do you think could improve the state of our nation when it comes to social care? Janine, I'll come to you first. Oh, Carrie, did I have to pick one thing? Okay. <laughs> oh, that's made it hard because I had a list. I would say running on the theme that we've just had, funding the chatbot to be used by all communities and helping to advertise, promote it and make it accessible. That would be great for central government to do that. Could be Fantastic. Victory, Thank you, Janine. No, I love that one. That's brilliant. Um, Robert, I'm coming to you next. Um, what one thing do you think could improve the state of our nation and social care? I would have to say empathy. And by that, I mean that um, one of the problems we always see within mental health is that um, it seems to be like a, a double-edged fork, um, where, where your distress is seen as deviance. And if we can actually get people to caring about the distress of others and what people go through, I think that um, that goes so much further to like uh, healing us as a, as a nation, really. Mm, distress is so often a way of communicating, isn't it? Yeah, um, yeah. And that's, yeah, really important. Thank you, um, Robert, for sharing that. And Shola, finally, um, interested to hear your thoughts. I would say it's upfront knowledge that's needed. I think, you know, with social care, it's often very reactive um, and people are already in states of crisis, um, you know, and the complexity of that as well. And I think if we as a, as a nation, if we were more aware of social care, 
generally that we talk about it, that we're aware of what it looks like, how to access it before you actually need it, if you need it at all. I think that would be such a different mindset um, that would be, yeah, really progressive. And I think that would allow that conversation around funding and and empathy to always be ongoing and, and, and shared as a nation rather than it being just a thing that, oh, it's kind of to one side and, and it's just shrouding so much mystery. You know, I think one of a real theme coming through today is that the empowerment comes from the knowledge. So understanding what it is, understanding the technical um, aspects of it. So that should just be kind of like part of the fabric of society. Excellent. So many people think that social care is part of health, don't they? And um, just just having that awareness and, and knowledge is power. Absolutely. So a great um, way to end the podcast. Thank you once again, Janine, Shola and Robert for joining me today. It was a really interesting conversation. Um, hopefully we'll have you back in a year's time so that we can look back over, over the past year and see how we've moved things on. Thank you so, so much. And um, I, I hope listeners will enjoy that. That really um, nourishing conversation. Thank you for having Thank us. You, Absolutely. Thank, Thank you, you. So I'm incredibly pleased to be joined today by Harry Clark Ezidio, who is a policy reporter at The New Statesman. He covers a range of areas in his work, including the cost of living crisis, levelling up and wider social affairs. Thank you so much for joining us today, Harry. Thanks for having me on, Carrie. That's a pleasure. So let's get started. We're going to have a bit of a chat about um, health inequalities today. But can you start by telling us a little bit about your role at the New Statesman? Yeah, sure. So I'm policy reporter at the NS. And as your intro outlined, I cover a range of areas. But, you know, increasingly over the last few years, health has sort of become a bigger slice of that pie. And, you know, health is central to a lot of areas of policy it's the cornerstone in the cost of living that has a very big health lens and so I do a lot of reports and features and data-led investigations around health as well as other social um, affairs areas as well so yeah a lot to sort of get my head around but yeah health is becoming an increasing sort of part of my repertoire. So you've written in the past about health and social care inequalities and we know that the pandemic shone a light on this inequity with racialized communities and people from certain parts of the country also experiencing much worse health outcomes than other parts of the population. So I'm curious then, Harry, how do you think current problems with funding of health and social care, as well as the workforce challenges that are being experienced in health and social care, will impact upon the issues that you've highlighted? Mm, well, I think if you look in the health and social care context, of course, it is something that was sort of brought most sharply to focus in the pandemic. Of course, you know, people from BAME backgrounds disproportionately suffered. I think the official statistics are that black males suffered at a rate of 2.7 times higher than that of white males. And it was also true for black females as well. I mean, if you look at the funding models within health and social care, of course, it is just a consequence of, I suppose, years of underinvestment in those sort of areas. And that sort of looks into something as simple as public health. If you look since 2015, the amount that councils have been given in public health spending and interventions that they're able to put in for people 
and groups of society that are struggling, whether that's smoking or drinking or problem gambling, for example, all of that has fell in particular in relation to smoking, which is, I suppose, one of the more uh, commonly seen behaviours in populations that are struggling. Public health funding has been cut by 41% since 2015. And so when councils who are already stretched in providing the mandatory services that they are required to provide, such as social care, it really is sort of, I suppose, a silent killer in a lot of ways because these behaviours are able to just sort of manifest and snowball. And then, you know, that affects at its core, as seen in the pandemic, those who typically fall on, you know, the more, um, you know, financially hard up end of the socioeconomic scale. So that is people from BAME backgrounds. That is, you know, towns and parts of the country in the north, for example, they suffered um, in comparison to the south, less affluent places in the north suffered during the pandemic and those on lower incomes as well. So it all sort of is connected and interlinked. And of course, when you look at the workforce issues, that is also sort of seen through those social lines as well, because a large part of that workforce is from BAME people, is from people on lower incomes. And so when there isn't sufficient funding to help pay these people properly or, you know, for these people to have more protections, it then sort of manifests and snowballs in ways that, you know, played out in such a harrowing context as was the pandemic. Mm, yeah so a lot of that um early intervention and prevention money that would have been really specifically aimed at some of those underserved communities um is is being cut and and then of course we're going to see that coming out the other end as as worse health and social care outcomes that's really interesting harry thank you so sajid javid promised a white paper aimed at addressing some of these issues he promised bold action to break the link between people's background and their prospect for a healthy life. Can you tell us what happened? Yes. So the health inequalities white paper is something that I have particularly had a keen interest in because, you know, myself, I am of black African Caribbean descent as well. And obviously having, you know, seen over the last few years, the effect that COVID has had and obviously the wider social economic issues that has led to people from similar backgrounds to myself struggling has sort of meant that I've had a particularly vested interest in this. I mean, you know, it goes back to COVID after COVID and seeing all of the effects it had on certain groups in society. The government said repeatedly that they would, quote, you know, learn the lessons of the pandemic. And it was green lighted this white paper at addressing health inequalities to, you know, tackle these health outcomes, these um, inequalities between health outcomes. And, you know, they basically said that they listened, they would look into the drivers of this that played out during the pandemic. But unfortunately, when it was commissioned in the immediate aftermath of, um, I think it was in, sorry, 2022, I believe mm-hmm. it was commissioned. Um, it was ready to go last summer. It was prepared it was going to be released but then it never saw the light of day the health secretary at the time uh therese coffee reportedly cancelled it because it was according to a source quote an affront to the government's view of what makes for health now that's obviously quite a statement and we're not exactly sure what it means but as i wrote 
it could be, you know, in terms of the research and the findings that it sort of was quite critical in terms of the government's role in creating conditions, you know, through cuts to the NHS and the general austerity period for allowing these health disparities to manifest and to snowball, but also the solutions in terms of what might need to be done to counteract this. It might sort of, I suppose, be at odds with what the Conservatives think the state should be doing in terms of healthcare and you know, health policy, it could be an affront to that, I suppose. I mean, Jeremy Hunt was the longest serving health secretary um, in the post-war period. He obviously knew his brief. He was chair of the health um, and social care select committee as well prior to becoming chancellor. And in an interview with us um, prior to becoming chancellor, he sort of also acknowledged the link between health and social care and how, you know, that sort of all plays out. He said, you know, cuts to social care under his watch as health secretary was actually a, quote, signing silent killer um, to which he, you know, attributed uh, to the severe ambulance delays that we see in A&E and emergency care. So it is all interlinked and, you know, this sort of scrapping of the white paper, you know, particularly in the context of everything that happened in COVID is particularly disappointing for a lot of people. Really disappointing. Let's hope that the um, new health secretary is listening to this and, and is persuaded to pick that back up. So Harry, I'm curious, what do you think some of the solutions might be to address health and social care inequalities? Well, yeah, I think like, you know, what seems to be a ray of hope, I suppose, is that health and social care and what sort of constitutes that and some of the outside factors that have a play in our health and social care is being acknowledged in a holistic way. And of course, the big sort of thing that's quite up for discussion at the minute is NHS and reform of the NHS. That is consensus at the minute, you know, both Labour and the Conservatives are saying that the NHS is broken, not fit for purpose. You know, there's a blame game about who exactly is at fault with that. But, you know, reform of the NHS does seem to be something that is on the horizon. What that actually looks like and what sort of will happen over the next few years is obviously something for each political party to consider. But I think, you know, the obvious thing is that a lot of that requires a host of funding, but also a workforce plan that, again, the government said that they will deliver, but has, you know, been really overdue. Um, in the meantime, of course, you know, trying to fill those gaps, trying to address the backlog, you know, we want to train up nurses, we want to take, have all of these professionals come in to address it, but that's not going to be done overnight to train, you know, a new generation of nurses and doctors. So there will inevitably be a sort of stopgap solution needed in the meantime, but, you know, reform of the NHS can only happen if there is adequate funding and an adequate workforce plan behind it. As touching on my point earlier, public health plays a massive role. If councils are able to sort of do a lot of that preventative work that a lot of them want to, I've spoken to a lot of councillors, but, you know, as we know, funding for councils has been absolutely decimated over the last 13 years as well. That can go a long way in helping people not get as sick in the first place. So by, by the time they use the NHS and other health settings, they won't be as sick. Um, and also, you know, 
a sort of more holistic approach as well in terms of investment in places and growth and people where you don't create such hard socioeconomic conditions where people aren't getting so sick in the first place um, is also key to sort of, I suppose, close the gap between um, health and social care and the inequalities that we currently see. So it's a lot. It's a lot. Mm, yeah. And so much is about prevention, isn't it, Harry? It's um, it's an issue that comes up again and again in these podcasts around um, us needing to break that cycle of only investing in crisis. Um, and that that manifests in so many different ways. But you're right to mention public health. It's really, really interesting. So, Harry, um, just to close then, we always ask the same question of our guests. Um, I would like to know what one thing do you think could change the state of our nation when it comes to social care? Oh, where do you start, really? Um, I think a lot sort of been made and it's probably quite an easy answer to have, you know, an adequate amount of appreciation for the people that work in health and social care, right? Because, you know, especially on the social care side of things, a lot of this is vocational stuff, right? People go into it, not going in for self gain to make tons of tons of money. It's something because people see a need in society to provide a service, to help people, to help those in need. And, you know, as you are well aware Carrie and others within the industry and you know the general public know especially in the light of the cost of living crisis more and more people are leaving the sector because not just because they don't feel appreciated but because they simply can't afford to stay people are moving into different jobs in retail or hospitality that may pay a couple of pounds more an hour and that might not sound a lot to a lot of people but you know in the midst of the cost of living crisis that really can make a difference and you know we obviously clapped for you know doctors nurses social care workers during the pandemic and that only goes so far as they said countless countless times you have nurses striking who've seen their real terms pay cut You've seen junior doctors have their real terms pay cut. And I've just outlined the situation facing a lot of social care workers. It's not just about pay, though, in a lot of contexts as well. It's about putting in adequate systems of support, not having to work overtime and countless endless bits of shifts to you know, compensate for a lack of funding that's been put into sufficiently supplying the workforce. And it's the same in social care as well. So when it does come to appreciating those who work in the health and social care sector, it's not just about money. It's not just about, you know, gratitude and, and saying thank you. It's about actively, you know, um, reflecting both in their pay, the structures of their work, and I suppose, you know, the the respect that they get, it should be reflected in all manners of way. And I don't think, you know, you can say that's been the case over the last decade or so. Yeah, I mean, I hear um, from social care providers that they're being put in a position whereby the cleaners in services are being paid more than the care workers. It just can't be right. Um, and I, th I think you're you're absolutely right to highlight, you know, if we want our loved ones and if we want ourselves to be supported well to a high quality, 
in social care services, it's imperative that we have the right people in those roles, being paid the right amount of money and being recognised for the exceptionally challenging work that they do. Um, so thank you, Harry. Um, you know, I was at a brilliant event last week called Care Sectors Got Talent, which was really a celebration of um, some of the amazing talent that is within the social care sector. Um, great event run by Championing Social Care that I'd, I recommend people have a look at and put their teams in for next year. But um, thank you. That It's really brilliant to have you on today, Harry. Great to hear your perspective on health and social care inequalities. So thank you um, for contributing. And hopefully we'll um, be able to have you on in the future to talk about how things have developed and moved on post the election. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. And hopefully it's uh, a bit less depressing next time. Thank you. Thank you for listening in to this month's episode of The State of Our Nation. For more information, please go to www.accesscharity.org.uk and follow us on Twitter at Access Charity One. At a time when the third sector continues to struggle in the face of economic uncertainty, your support has never meant more. That's why I would like to take this opportunity to let you know about our cost of living crisis campaign set up to help us provide free legal advice to people in England, ensuring they get the support they're entitled to. To make a pledge, please see the link to our Crowd Justice page in the bio. I hope you will all tune in next month to hear our next exciting panel of guests.